On our last visit, we learned of William Goldman's first real foray into movies with Paul Newman in Harper, the virtue of learning the craft and luck of quote-unquote jumping past the shit. Goldman released his novel The Thing of It Is, and we know spent a year on its projects, mostly in production development, albeit never coming to fruition. He began teaching creative writing at Princeton University, and it was over that 1965-66 Christmas break that he wrote the instant classic and seminal in so many ways, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which would not only be a huge hit, but his second screenplay, first original, would win him his first Academy Award. That released in 1969, the same year as his first nonfiction, the still highly regarded The Season, his extensive look at Broadway. Up next was his next novel, Father's Day, a sequel to The Thing of It Is. Then came his next screenplay, another adaptation, the heist comedy drama The Hot Rock, which is better, at least more fun, than you may have heard. We touched on his 1973 serious bout of pneumonia, which everything seems to double or triple up, doesn't it? Is the same year as one of his most enduring works, the novel The Princess Bride, including, with subsequent anniversary editions, an extensive amount of further writing, further meta-diving, from Goldman that's genuinely fun, especially for fellow Stephen King fans. The pneumonia sparked a flurry of creativity, and we'll certainly see that over the next few years. Today's chapter closes out 1978. As we've now reached 1974 and his one and only children's book, Wigger, and in that same year, talk about a polar opposite, his next novel, the indeed-as-good-as-you've-heard thriller that made the world fear dentists, Marathon Man. Up next is his Next, screenplay, another adaptation, this time of Ira Levin's novel, The Stepford Wives. The movie holds his credit, but you don't think it quite feels like him? You're not wrong, and we'll get into the fact it was so rewritten by the director that Goldman wanted his name taken off, and lost. Still, that same year, 1975, sees the release of his next original screenplay, this one reuniting him with Butch and Sundance director George Roy Hill, and co-star Robert Redford in Hill's Love Letter to Old Airplanes, The Great Waldo Pepper. Also better than you may have heard, if nothing else, a gorgeous-looking picture. Then it's 1976, and we arrive at William Goldman's biggest undertaking to date, and perhaps since, when he adapts the real-life Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein Watergate investigation. We'll get into some of its great behind-the-scenes, you know by now my love for the stories beside the stories, including Goldman's honest take of the whole thing, even years later in hindsight. Spoiler, he's said a bunch of times, a bunch of different ways, would he change anything if he had to relive his movie career? He said he'd write exactly the screenplays he'd written, only he wouldn't have gone near All the President's Men, despite it winning him his second Oscar. But that's not all for 1976, as the same year saw the release of his next novel, Magic, and the release of the Marathon Man movie. And we'll close out today in 1977 with A Bridge Too Far, producer Joseph E. Levine's and director Richard Attenborough's glorious, I don't know a better word to describe it, star-studded epic war anti-war true events adaptation of the Cornelius Ryan book. Well, I guess I did have a few more words to describe it. Sir Attenborough's name you likely recognize, if today just for Jurassic Park, and Joe Levine, just one of the great producers with a story all his own. Not to mention, A Bridge Too Far, the movie, begat Goldman's next nonfiction, The Making of A Bridge Too Far. Goldman writes of the whole thing thusly, quote, It was probably the best experience I've had in films until the reviews came out. End quote. And... This is From Out of the Past, a podcast from Holland Imaginarium. Season 1, William Goldman. <laughs>
Chapter 4. It killed me to write that. We'll begin by noting December 1973 saw the passing of Goldman's longtime editor, Hiram Hyden, who you may remember from our chatting boys and girls together, Hyden championing that as Goldman's quote-unquote serious work, to the tune of releasing No Way to Treat a Lady, the populist work, and finished first, after boys and girls, including releasing Lady under a pseudonym, Harry Longbow, the real name of the Sundance Kid. None of these are marks against Haydn, who was not only a brilliant man and a great editor, but indeed Goldman's dear friend, to the point of being a father figure. But we must also note Haydn never embraced populist fashion and what no way to treat a lady might mean, notably Goldman's continuing down that populist, indeed here thriller, direction with, in 1974 and 76 respectively, Marathon Man and Magic? and we'll get there. But first, always trying to chat things as they're released, we'll look at Goldman's sole children's work, the unfortunately titled Wigger, released September 1974. I say unfortunately titled because, of course, of the word's modern-day connotation. But in 1974, it was simply the name of Goldman's daughter Susanna's security blanket. This is in real life. But, like The Princess Bride, he was inspired by family life to write another book therein, including the lead character in this novella, a seven-year-old little girl, being named Susanna. Of Goldman's works, save perhaps the non-compiled published short stories and magazine articles, rigor is the most difficult to obtain. Because of the connotation, modern reprints do not exist, but also because of some, since Goldman's 2018 passing, legal restrictions on some of his works, Wigger included. Briefly, Wigger tells the story of seven-year-old Susanna, who loses her parents in an accident, finds no love from other relatives, and ends up in an orphanage. This is all by page 10. Her only friend is her blanket, who she talks with, a la Calvin and Hobbes, and aside, we know Goldman would come to love Calvin and Hobbes. The bulk of the book takes place during Christmas in New York, where Susanna and Blanket are separated, Blanket as far as Switzerland, and Susanna falls into despair. And here we get, I think, one of Goldman's great inspirations. The head of the orphanage threatens to put Susanna in a dark, scary room until she stops crying, and Susanna, holding back the tears, becomes deathly ill. A specialist is called. Here's Goldman's own writing. Well, it's really quite strange. I don't know how to phrase it, the specialist began. Because, you see, even though I know we have her safely in bed, not in any way near a river or lake or bay or any other liquid mass, the child is drowning. Drowning in her pent-up tears. That's really something. Well, things continue darkly to the point little Susanna is placed in a coffin. Meanwhile, in Switzerland, in something of a zelig Forrest Gump-like fashion of Blanket being passed from person to person, adventure to adventure, an artist carries Blanket to the top of a mountain where he places it as a flag, and a magical wind blows, Blanket finding its way back into the hands of little Susanna, who slaps the hands of the undertakers. She sure is still alive, and our reunited heroes, Little Girl and her blanket, are back where they began, simply with each other, and that will always be enough. The first edition illustrations were done by Errol Lacane, the acclaimed writer-illustrator perhaps best known for doing the titles for the films A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and the 1967 Casino Royale. It's interesting, biographer Sean Egan finds the most fault in Goldman's writing in Goldman's fairy tales, fables, calling The Princess Bride, quote, boring where it is not pleased with itself and is a real chore to get through, end quote. And no, I'm not kidding. Admittedly, I'm such a Goldman fan that that shocked me. 
I genuinely think Princess Bride is some of his best work, but then Egan goes on to say about Wigger, remember I mentioned it's a magical wind that carries Blanket back to Susanna? Quote, that the wind is portrayed whistling through the stars might perplex a schoolteacher trying to explain to her charges that space is a vacuum. End quote. So perhaps Egan simply doesn't like or doesn't get fairy tales, fables? As learned as he reads, I have to presume the former. In any event, it's also worth mentioning he does like Goldman's upcoming, we'll chat about next week, fable, The Silent Gondoliers. I'll close this bit with spotlighting Rivka Galshin's wonderful January 2019 New Yorker article about her discovery of this lesser-known Goldman work. You can find her piece online, and it's well worth the read. She talks of reading Wigger to her daughter and, quote, So many of the very best stories for children are almost too dark for adults, or this adult to bear. Sad things happen in children's books often, but somehow this book, with all its stillness, seems far sadder to me. I intimated I don't like dark books for children, but that's untrue. I admire and fear them, and I seek them out. Wigger satisfies both my daughter's longing for zigs and zags, and my longing for the straightest line possible. The story ends exactly where it begins. And Wigger was still all she had, Goldman writes, but that was enough. End quote. And yes, I think Ms. Galshin indeed gets William Goldman. Is it safe? Is it safe? New York, 1973 into 1974, and Goldman's longtime editor, soldier in the rain, through the Princess Bride, and friend, indeed a father figure, Hiram Hyden, has passed, and Goldman signs with Delacorte Press. This is worth mentioning for two reasons. One, for the first time, he wasn't writing on spec, without an upfront deal. Rather, he was now writing with a signed contract, and an advance, two million for three novels. And the second reason? In a lot of ways, he reinvented himself as a storyteller, evolving from a quote-unquote serious writer to an intentionally populist one, as a novelist, and remember, that's how he first viewed himself. First up in this new era? I had a whole bunch of ideas for what I guess you could call popular fiction. When I wrote No Way to Treat a Lady, Hiram never saw it till it was done. He never wanted me to write that, and we published it under a pseudonym. When he died, I began to write, for good or ill, a different kind of novel. I was a huge fan of Graham Greene, and I thought, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to write a spy thriller or something? Marathon Man was a commercial piece. I don't know why I wrote it then, but Hiram was dead, and it rocked me. I'm sure if Hiram had lived, I would never have written Marathon Man. You know the story. A former Nazi, Zell, hiding in South America needs to get to New York to recover diamonds he stole from Auschwitz prisoners. Babe Levy is a graduate student at Columbia and an aspiring marathon runner who becomes a target for knowing if it's safe to recover the diamonds. By Zell, or by the government agency working with and against Zell. Running side by side with all this is Doc Levy, Babe's older brother, who may not be the man Babe thinks he is. It came from two ideas. One, what if someone in your family whom you knew and loved wasn't remotely what you had thought? And two, what if the world's most wanted Nazi came to Manhattan? How many years I had those nuggets before I finally wrote the book, I don't know. But that was where it came from. In the book, it's worth noting, Babe is writing his PhD dissertation on his famous historian father, who committed suicide from being accused of McCarthy communism, Babe's graduate work trying to clear his name. This can't help but be an allusion to Goldman's own father's suicide, masked, I think, in a manner similar, the scholar father, to the Temple of Gold. And in the books behind the scenes, Goldman's first instinct for why Zell had to return to America was for heart surgery, 
This was a real-life new thing at the time. A Cleveland surgeon had just begun a revolutionary process, and people were indeed coming in from all over the world. But then Goldman thought a frail villain wasn't quote-unquote story-worthy, so it was a bit back to the drawing board. Then Goldman was walking in New York's Diamond District. And it was filled with Jewish diamond sellers and buyers, and it was crowded with all these people with visible scars. And I thought, oh my God, what if a Nazi was walking down this street? It's a tense sequence in the novel, but then the whole novel is wonderfully tense. Part spy thriller and part first-person paranoid struggle to stay, I was going to say alive, but afloat is a better word. Babe's yearning for his father's truth suddenly drowned by his own world, what he thought was his world, the good he thought could come from his world, running away from him. While No Way to Treat a Lady was great melodrama, this is great drama. Biographer Egan called it, quote, a gritty, contemporary, urban, pacey, profane, and blood-splattered thriller, end quote. And here he sure gets Goldman. Marathon Man, the novel, was released in October 1974, and as a novel solely, particularly in original hardcover, was Goldman's first real success. His novels had done well in paperback, true, but Marathon Man was an initial bestseller. In fact, by 1976, it had been sold to a dozen countries, something to that time none of his previous successes had done in any form. And we'll go ahead and chat the movie along with the novel here, and we'll do the same with Magic, since they're both, both novels' movies, released by the time, 1978, we'll close this week's chat. If you've read Adventures in the Screen Trade, you've read of Goldman's comments on Dustin Hoffman's difficulties on set, at least from Goldman's perspective, and I've decided not to be gossipy here. Instead, we'll note Goldman's particularly, reverently, spotlighting Sir Laurence Olivier, not just as an actor, Natch, but as a person, even in that late stage when his health was already less than stellar. And an acting story beside the story? How about Goldman getting a phone call from another gentleman who was interested in the part of Zell, Richard Widmark, who you can likely envision here, I sure can, particularly if you're a fan of 1947's Kiss of Death. The Marathon Man book and movie are close enough that fans of the text will indeed enjoy the flick. And remember, Goldman said, with how No Way to Treat a Lady was changed, he'd never let anyone else adapt his novels? This was his first, adapting his own. And he said many times it's always more difficult adapting your own work than someone else's because of the objectivity always needing, but sometimes not having, which we'll get into further with Absolute Power in Chapter 8. From something as simple as, how can I cut that? It killed me to write that, to needing to understand they're each, a novel and a movie, completely different mediums, and need to be handled, structured, presented to the audience differently, to having to respect and fight for the tone, the pulse, the soul of the novel in its movie version. Originals are tough because, perhaps obviously, you're creating on top of structuring, all within entertaining. But adaptations are tough, especially for fellow novelists, because they have to adapt how a movie tells a story while keeping what they loved about the book. And they really do, all adapters should, respect both processes. And sure, there are a lot of great adaptations and a lot of bad ones. One I think is great a modern one easy to reference? Jurassic Park. It retains what the book's about. Not just the plot, but what the book is, how it feels, what it's trying to say in the movie medium. That they're different enough we can enjoy both, be surprised and satisfied by both, is indeed gold. I'd written several drafts of the novel and a lot of versions of the movie, and I was whipped, and I hoped, at last, I'd gotten it down okay. Marathon Man was difficult to turn into a screenplay, because only one scene, Olivier in the Diamond District, was a totally exterior scene. You could just lift it almost shot for shot. Quick definition. When Goldman says exterior here, he doesn't mean outside, but rather 
not primarily inner monologue, as is most of the novel. The now famous and indeed part impetus Diamond District Walk is one of the rare third-person POVs. The only two moments from the novel that wrote easily for the movie were the ones near the end, with Zell in the Diamond District finally being spotted by the Jews, and the dental scene. The dental scene. In the book and the movie. If its impact has lessened over time, think what Jaws did for the ocean and what it did for clowns, and that's a pretty good measure. How visceral it was, and still is. People were walking out of the theater. But it's even a better story than that. Legend has it, people were enjoying the movie, but had heard the dental scene was so intense, they walked into the lobby just to miss that scene, then came back for the rest of the movie. Or, how about this? This is true. People stopped going to the dentist. Goldman's told two great stories over the years that I'll abridge here. One is when he himself sat in his dentist's chair, this is while he's writing the novel, and he's talking to his dentist about how Babe has a cavity and what's about to happen, and the dentist says, No, Bill, forget the cavity. You want pain? Have him drill into a healthy tooth. And the second great story is after the novel and movie have both come out, and Goldman's back in a dentist's chair. Goldman's in L.A. this time, so he has to go to a gum guy out there. And the dentist realizes who Goldman is. Excuse me, dentist says, walks out, comes back, gently finishes his work, and Goldman gets up to go. And as Goldman is walking out, there's a whole corridor of dentists staring at him. Well, did the hit novel make a hit movie? We all sat around this large table for the first script reading. Big moment for me. An Oscar-winning director, Schlesinger, wonderful actors like Hoffman and Scheider and Bill Devane, and of course Olivier, one of my heroes, along with Willie Mays and Bronco Nagurski and Erwin Shaw. And I am, as I always am at such moments, tired and scared because I didn't have much more to give to the project. That happens to a screenwriter, at least to this one. You've thought about it so long, done it so often in your head or on paper that you start to get punchy, silly, dry. I wanted the reading to work so I could leave it behind, begin to rebuild my head. And the reading more than worked. It went wonderfully. And after that, someone, I suspect Robert Town, was brought in to rewrite the ending. Yes, even to William Goldman, it happens, and will again. Marathon Man the Movie, produced by Robert Evans, photographed by Conrad Hall, Olivier was Oscar-nominated, was released October 1976 and was a huge hit, in addition to, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid before it, becoming a cultural phenomenon. And here's one more look at Goldman's wonderful stupid courage, which I genuinely love, he loves, and would forever embrace. The one thing I can look at in Marathon Man is in the novel. God, I wished it had somehow been in the movie, too. When Babe has been tortured, and there's not a lot left, and the three bad guys take him out to a car to finish things, feebly he breaks free, literally running for his life. And he was never a great runner. Never mentioned in the same breath as his two heroes, Nermi and Bikila, the legend he has pictures of in his room. And while he runs, he calls up all kinds of fantasies to spur himself, even inhales through his damaged tooth to make the pain even more horrendous. But nothing works. And then Nermi and Bikila are flanking him, telling him the pain is part of being great. Only real marathon men understand pain. And they bring him on home. New York, 1974 into 1975. We've only skimmed Goldman's short stories, mostly for time, though if you're indeed a fan, or I hope becoming one, I do suggest searching them out. Columbia's William Goldman Papers, Columbia University where Goldman received his master's, houses his archive, an impressive 240-plus boxes to which anyone can request access. I mention it because the William Goldman papers contain nearly 50 short stories. Testament to the fact, I'm now quoting biographer Egan, the man whose life was changed by Irwin Shaw's mixed company 
desperately wanted to succeed in that medium. End quote. The end of 1974 saw Goldman's last of only five published short stories, The Simple Pleasures of the Rich, in Transatlantic Review, and is worth noting as a bookend to The Looming Fates that, at least in Goldman's mind, forever surrounded him. And perhaps they aren't just in his mind, because it's worth noting the by-this-time hit novelist and Oscar-winning screenwriter was rejected to the tune of 60 to 75 times before Transatlantic Review acquiesced. As Goldman told Richard Anderson, quote, The intense rejection from everybody of what was the best I could do made me stop writing short stories. End quote. Perhaps proving all our looming fates can stick around if we let them. February 1975 sees the release of The Stepford Wives, based on the Ira Levin novel, and if that name sounds familiar, Levin also did, among others, Rosemary's Baby, The Boys from Brazil, and Death Trap, Sidney Lumet's movie of Levin's play, A Personal Favorite. Goldman talks a little about Stepford Wives, but it's mostly about his relationship with its director, Brian Forbes, who, legend has it, Goldman championed over... Brian De Palma, alas. And Goldman chats in an infamous anecdote I wouldn't dare ruin your discovery of, actress Nanette Newman, Carol in the movie. Whenever I suggest someone read Adventures in the Screen Trade, or Which Lie Did I Tell, Goldman's Writing on Writing, which we'll get into specifically in Chapter 9, I always say, you'll see the chapter titled The Princess Bride, but don't skip to it because there's so much more great stuff before and after. Or, you'll see the chapter titled The Year of the Comet, but if you don't know that movie, don't skip it, because there's so much other great stuff in it. Goldman opens his Stepford Wives chapter with five pages on the writer's relationship with the director, not just on this picture in general, and is more of Goldman's great quote-unquote insider stuff. While A Stepford Wife has become part of modern lexicon, its source is in the plot that a small Connecticut town has overly beautiful while overly subservient wives. When our heroine, Catherine Ross, unravels the mystery of the madness, something of a Twilight Zone spiral begins. If the movie is what it is, and alas again, it is, the novel is wholly entertaining. And the legend that Goldman wrote a screenplay for The Stepford Wives, but it was radically changed by the director? P.S. Keep in mind, Goldman always preferred writing in New York, calling California, quote-unquote, out there. Here he is now. Brian Forbes is what is called, out there, a hyphenate. He is a writer-director. Since he got his first directing job, he has written every movie he's been involved with. He would totally rewrite Stepford, too. Almost totally. The last quarter of the movie is mine. I think he would have changed that, too, but he ran out of time. But Forbes was no slouch, having been Oscar-nominated for writing 1961's The Angry Silence. Biographer Egan notes Goldman's work on Stepford Wives thusly, quote, He did a lot of work on this project. Instead of just relying on Ira Levin's 1972 novel, he investigated the women's liberation movement that is central to its plot. A box in Columbia's William Goldman Papers contains various feminist books, magazines, and cuttings he read. End quote. The movie did well, but not that well. But it did well enough? Here's Goldman again. Stepford Wives was probably released badly as far as the people involved in the making of that movie are concerned. It has some exploitable elements, but it wasn't Halloween. The best way to release it would have been slowly, praying for favorable word of mouth. The studio threw it on the market in hundreds of theaters immediately. Why? Because the studio's needs are not the same as the needs of the individual pictures, and right then Columbia needed cash flow. Badly. Stepford got them some dollars. It was gone in a month, but it served the studio well. And, remember, Goldman wanted his name taken off it. Lost that battle. 1975 would also see the release of Goldman's next movie, and his first original since Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and reuniting him with that picture's director and co-star, 
The Great Waldo Pepper, directed by George Roy Hill and starring Robert Redford. Waldo was basically an original screenplay of mine. I say basically because the pulse of the movie came from George Hill and we worked for 10 days on a story. So Waldo wasn't as original as Butch, but it was a hell of a lot more mine than any adaptation I'd ever done. The movie was Hill's great passion. He'd been a pilot in two wars. He really wanted to do a movie about old airplanes, and he was the great director for me that I ever worked with, even if I didn't realize quite how brilliant he was then. We did the two movies, and Waldo was something I did because we had such a great experience on Butch. The Great Waldo Pepper is a romantic, fun-and-games, high-adventure character study drama about barnstorming in the 1920s. Barnstorming? When World War I ended, pilots would keep aviation alive, in America at least, by flying from town to town giving people rides, sometimes at a dollar a minute. Conservatively, that's about $15 a minute in 2023. Most people had never seen a plane, much less been in one. Quick aside, there was a great original opening sequence, only scripted, not in the movie, not even shot, of ten-year-old boys running and jumping off rooftops and trees and cliffs into the air, flying in a dreamlike sequence over ten-year-old girls watching in awe, all beautiful slow motion, and it dissolved to the real plane motor running, Redford flying into town as he does in the movie. Goldman not incorrectly, thought it properly set up the world because barnstorming pilots really were just adolescents nourishing a heroic fantasy that World War I had taken away. Hill thought the fantasy clashed with the reality to come. And remember that sentiment. End of aside. By the mid-twenties, we're back in the history lesson now, the town-to-town -to flying rides fashion had died and pilots banded together to perform stunt shows. Great for another short time, then along came Earhart and Lindbergh, and aviation is, finally in America, big business. And our barnstorming heroes drifted to Hollywood for stunt work. When Hill and I worked on the story, we found the structure almost dictated itself, falling naturally into three acts. Waldo hustling and taking people up for rides, then the air shows getting increasingly spectacular and hairy, and finally Hollywood. The movie ends on the climactic air fight, where they tear each other's planes apart with the cameras rolling. Now, this is, relatively speaking, dark material. Oedipus it isn't, but it's a long way from Animal House. And this is where the movie falters. Because remember when I called it a romantic, fun-and-games, high-adventure, character-study drama? That's just what it is. Rather, being all those at the same time hurts it. It is a gorgeous picture. The 1920s setting works even today, and Robert Surtees' photography is awesome in the true sense of the word. On top of being pretty to look at, think the aeronautics of wings in the 1970s. And George Roy Hill, already a great director, really is writing a love letter here. But the picture indeed wavers. Vincent Candy of the New York Times wrote, quote, the Great Waldo Pepper is a most appealing movie. Its moods don't quite mesh, and its aerial sequences are so vivid, sometimes literally breathtaking, that they upstage the human drama. And yet the total effect is healthily romantic. End quote. And you think that review wavers? It's wholly accurate. No picture I've been involved with aroused the expectations of Waldo Pepper. A giant star and a romantic adventure, a major director working from the single deepest passion of his life, the most successful aerial stunts maybe since Wings. I received calls from people in the business and the word was this, Waldo would pick up all the marbles. Hill and Redford had worked together twice before, Butch and The Sting. Waldo would complete the trilogy. Alas, it's great. And it isn't. Sometimes you do it right, and it still doesn't work. That was the great Waldo Pepper. Follow the money. 1976 was a big year for William Goldman, beginning with his biggest tackle to date, and even after might remain the biggest, 
his adaptation of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's Watergate investigation, articles in the Washington Post that literally made history by causing the president to resign that became the now-famous book, All the President's Men. Brief history lesson, if need be. The Watergate scandal was Richard Nixon's administration's attempts to cover up its involvement in the 1972 burglary of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C.'s Watergate office building. Cash found on the burglars was connected to the committee to re-elect the president. Witnesses testified, and Oval Office recorded tapes confirmed, Nixon had approved plans to cover up his administration's involvement, and even tried to use federal officials to deflect attention from the investigation. Three articles of impeachment were approved, and in 1974, Nixon resigned. That same year, All the President's Men, the book, was released. The name alludes to the nursery rhyme. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Gene Roberts, former executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, and former managing editor of the New York Times, famously called the book, quote, the single greatest reporting effort of all time, end quote. Interestingly, while Woodward and Bernstein had considered the idea of writing a book about Watergate, they did not commit until Robert Redford expressed interest in a movie version. In Telling the Truth About Lies, The Making of All the President's Men, Woodward notes Redford played an important role in changing the book's narrative from a story about Watergate to one about their investigation of it. We should also note up front that Redford, on top of playing Woodward, would very much produce the movie. It may be difficult today to appreciate the attention hold Watergate had on the public then, and keep in mind this is before mass media at our fingertips. This is long before even the internet. Yet, that's the kind of attention it had. Every paper in the country, all of radio and TV, every news program, talk show program, every conversation by the water cooler, in the supermarket, at the hair salon, was Watergate. Everyone knew every detail. I mention it because all media darlings must at some point fade, and given just how white-hot the spotlight was here, how consistently and for how long, perhaps it burned out brightest. When I began researching the Woodward Bernstein book, before it was published, it seemed at best a dubious project. I knew it would be a quality project, so I dare not turn it down, but politics were anathema at the box office, the material was talky, there was no action, etc., etc. Most of all, though, people were sick to fucking death of Watergate. For months, whenever anyone asked me what I was working on, when I answered, there was invariably the same reply, gee, don't you think we've heard enough about Watergate? Because of course we had. Years of headlines, claims and disclaimers, lies and occasional clarifying truths. I decided my best bet was to try and surprise people. So I opened the original script with the most cornball shot in the world, the Washington Monument lit up at night. Then another totally predictable shot, the Watergate complex then inside the building to the Democratic National Committee offices, and a bunch of men quietly and expertly starting the famous break-in. I truly hoped at this point the audience would be groaning. What are we doing here, for Christ's sakes? We know it already. The robbery went on, tautly and expertly in silence. Only they had the wrong keys. They goofed up. They had to leave the place, frustrated and angry. The reason I opened that way was because that really happened. People didn't know it all. In fact, the now-famous break-in was either the third or fourth attempt. One night, I swear this is true, they were almost caught by the cleaning crew and had to stay in the building all night, leaving the next morning empty-handed. And what I wanted was to have people suddenly looking at each other and saying, hey, maybe I better pay attention. There's stuff here I hadn't heard about. The opening was never shot because the movie always had a length problem and the feeling was we didn't need the red herring to start off with. At the time, though, at least in theory, it had a purpose to set up a world in which there would be traps and surprises. Traps and surprises. There would be a bunch on screen and off, 
on screen you likely know about, the wonderful journalism tracking the political intrigue as brilliantly handled by director Alan Pakula, cinematographer Gordon Willis, actors Redford, Dustin Hoffman, Jason Robards, Hal Holbrook, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Meredith Baxter, Ned Beatty, and, and, and. Production designer George Jenkins and editor Robert Wolfe. Genuinely amazing talent on screen and off. It really is a masterpiece of storytelling. Well, Goldman getting them something to work with? Bob Woodward, who'd already worked on the story for two years, was wonderfully supportive. I cannot overemphasize his importance to the screenplay. It was an incredibly complicated story, and trying to find the handle was a bitch. The book had no structure, very little dialogue, and there were all those goddamn names no one could keep straight. Stans and Sturgis and Barker and Segretti and McCord and Kalmbach and Magruder and Kleindienst and Strachan and Abplanalp and Rebozo and Backward Reeled the Mind. Forget for now trying to make a screenplay. I was struggling just getting the events straight. I hacked away at the material and reached one conclusion. Throw away the last half of the book. If I ended there and began at the break-in, I didn't have a whole structure, but at least I had the start of one. I fiddled with the rest of the narrative and asked Woodward to list the crucial events, not the most dramatic, but the essentials. He named them, about 13, and I'd included every single one. So even if the screenplay stunk, at least the structure would be sound. I hope it's needless to say the screenplay didn't stink. Goldman turned in his draft to Redford, remember Redford's producing here, in August 1974. And keep in mind, by this time, the two had made three films together, Butch and Sundance, The Hot Rock, and Waldo Pepper. So they were friends. Their wives were friends. Remember, in Chapter 2, we talked about Eileen Goldman and Lola Redford starting the environmental organization Consumer Action Now together. Their kids were friends. So the families go to Utah, where even then Redford had a house and ski resort, and Goldman and Redford work on the script. By this time, the script had also gone to Warner Brothers, to the Washington Post editors, and to Woodward and Bernstein. There were a lot of powerful men from Nixon on down who were not presented backlit and beautiful. Warner Brothers was terrified of lawsuits, but Woodward and Bernstein had not been sued for their book, meaning it was accurate. Strictly in terms of storytelling, we got credit for our faithfulness to the book, kind of horseshit since the movie ends halfway through it, what we were faithful to was their story of a terrible hinge in American history. In other words, we didn't Hollywood it up. We know of two changes from the book, outside of the movie only covering its first half. One is the bit where Carl Bernstein outfakes a secretary to get in to see someone. And two, the movie introduced the now part of modern lexicon catchphrase follow the money. That doesn't appear in the book or in any Watergate documentation. Goldman invented it as a connective. There's a legend, floating, whispered, that Goldman's initial thought on how to structure the thing was as a detective story, a la his fandom for Ross MacDonald, viz. Harper. Still, calling back to truth over facts, above and beyond the legality of the thing, I do think, throughout, the movie respects its real-life story and characters. It's 1975 now, and script notes are happening, changes are happening, all par for the course, but Goldman enters a particularly rough time. Redford hires director Alan Pakula, who has his own notes. Goldman tells of Pakula asking for rewrites multiple ways. You want the revised scene both longer and shorter? To which Pakula replied often, quote, Don't deprive me of any riches, end quote. Something no less than Warren Beatty, who'd done the parallax view with Pakula, warned Goldman of. This caused Redford to have more notes. Still par for the course? Maybe. What wasn't, and has since become a bit of Hollywood legend itself, was Carl Bernstein and then-girlfriend Nora Ephron, yes, that Nora Ephron, wrote their own version of the screenplay, bomb-dropped on Goldman, which Redford couldn't help but consider, 
Never mind, he and Goldwyn were friends, their wives were friends, their kids were friends, you get the idea. This, of course, infuriated Goldman. Lawyers got involved, all the while Goldman still doing his own Pakula and Redford notes. I will say only one bit of the Bernstein-Efron draft is in the film. And maybe you guessed what it is. The totally made-up Bernstein outfaking the secretary. Well, in a Goldman-Redford meeting years later, Redford admitted to him, quote, I don't know what the six worst things I've ever done in my life are, but letting them write that is one of them, end quote. And we'll let that lie there because we'll come to a particularly odd bookend in chapter 10. It should also be noted that sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, Goldman and Efron ran into each other at a gathering, and, well, here's Goldman quickly with, quote, She came over and said, I'm really sorry, and I hugged her, and that was forever that, end quote. I ended all the president's men on a fuck-up by Woodward and Bernstein. My logic was that time had proven them right, made them rich, famous, their own media darlings. So the audience, I hoped, would carry that out with them. So we did not have to tell them how wonderful were Bob and Carl. Quick aside, and this is no mark against the movie or Goldman's take, Pakula's, Redford's takes, on what Watergate story to tell. In its time, it indeed worked beautifully, Today, I still think it works beautifully, but I bring it up because of it being of its time. That is, the audience indeed needs to know how the story ends because of that essentially cliffhanger, downer ending. Yes, there's the teletype noting how it plays out, the post getting their info, Nixon's resignation, Ford's swearing in, but it's, I wonder if it's an anticlimactic ending to a modern audience? End of aside. I'd never written as many versions for any movie as for President's Men. I'm 18 months hacking away and tired of it all, and I didn't want to deprive anyone of any riches, but I felt impoverished and wondered when it would all end. It ended when the phone stopped ringing. When they started shooting, I found out Pakula had brought in someone else to be in Washington with him. Not remember far-off Hollywood's par for the course. The movie releases April 1976 and is a huge hit, both critically and commercially. Many people say it should have won Best Picture, but that went to Rocky, and not in the easiest year. Others up for the prize? How about Network and Taxi Driver? Still, All the President's Men won four Academy Awards, including, yes, Goldman's second, and this ceremony he did attend. More than its accolades, the movie remains to this day a taut, thrilling piece of journalism and political drama, long before, though I believe an inspiration for, Aaron Sorkin. Here's learned writer David Thompson again with, quote, One could claim that Goldman's adapted screenplay saved the movie from plot labyrinth, gave it the necessary melodrama, and enshrined indefatigable newshounds. Its clarity was only made possible by Goldman, Think of the book, think of the real events, and marvel at how this picture works. Deep Throat seems to have written it, and so screenwriting and the paranoia about conspiracy become interdependent. The famous and successful Woodward Bernstein book became a famous and successful film. I saw it, and it seemed very much to resemble what I'd done. Of course, there were changes, but there were always changes. Some ad-libbing, scenes moving around, that kind of thing. If Woodward was the hero of the screenplay, Gordon Willis was the hero of the film. And if you were to ask me, what would you change if you had your movie life to live over? I'd tell you I'd have written exactly the screenplays I've written. Only I wouldn't have gone near all the president's men. That's not all for 1976, because that September sees the release of William Goldman's next novel, Magic. And if you're asking, how did Goldman have time to write another novel while working on President's Men? I think it was, for Goldman, the novelist first, a welcome distraction throughout those 18 months of President's trudging. And look how different palate-cleansing Magic is from President's Men. Stepping back a bit, getting us to Magic the Novel, 
Remember, in 1974, Goldman signed with Delacorte Press, a four-book, three-novel deal for $2 million. And for thems interested like me, that's $12.4 million today. The first of the Delacorte books was Marathon Man, the second Magic, the third will be Tinsel, and the fourth will be Adventures in the Screen Trade. The latter two we'll talk about next week. Magic, like Marathon Man, is a straight thriller, this time about a shy magician, Corky, whose struggling performances improves when he adds a foul-mouthed ventriloquist dummy, Fats, to the act. Goldman has said he had the idea for the ventriloquist stuff a long time before putting it to paper, and it's great thriller stuff, particularly in the chilling question, how alive is Fats? But where the book really shines is in the character drama with quirky flashbacks to high school and family life there, through present-day relationships with three key figures in his life, his magic mentor, a supportive agent, and renewed love interest. Considering how big a part Fats, the quote-unquote dummy, plays, it's an incredibly human story with many fun twists, from the first chapter through the last. One of the inspirations is from the great sleight-of-hand artist John Scarn, who did something once that almost cost him his life. Paraphrasing here, he, get this, taught himself to cut to the ace of spades. You heard that right. He pretended it was a trick, but what he taught himself was to spot the ace and instantly be able to count cards to it. He almost got killed when he did it in front of a Prohibition gangster who demanded Skarn show him the trick, and Skarn had to prove it wasn't a trick. It was indeed him counting. Fortunately, the gangster eventually believed him. For fellow Maverick fans, this bit was also used in that Goldman script, which we'll get into more in Chapter 7. As we earlier spoke, Marathon Man the Movie, along with its novel, and Marathon Man the Movie will also come out in 1976, told you it was a big year for Goldman, will chat Magic the Movie now along with its novel, Magic the Movie coming out in 1978. While we'll close today with A Bridge Too Far, there are a lot of tie-ins. Tie-throughs? Both Bridge and Magic were produced by Joseph E. Levine and directed by Richard Attenborough. The three, Levine, Attenborough, and Goldman, had such a good experience on A Bridge Too Far, they continued even past Magic. Levine and Goldman in a three-picture deal we'll talk about next week, and Attenborough and Goldman on 1992's Chaplin, which we'll talk about in Chapter 7. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Magic the novel was well-received, and Levine paid $1 million for the rights and for Goldman to do the screenplay. And by now you may have recognized my obsession, what things cost then versus what they cost now. Well, a million then is four-plus today. Magic the Movie stars Anthony Hopkins as Corky, and Anne-Margaret as the love interest, and Burgess Meredith as the supportive agent. If you haven't seen it, I'd only suggest reading the book first so you get all the great twists and surprises there. Then, if you love the book, and you will, you're in for a real treat, as the movie is as good an adaptation, once again done by Goldman himself, as we were chatting Jurassic Park. What's changed was done to shine in the different medium without taking away from what the book is. Biographer Egan culls it well with, quote, With the story stripped back, magic becomes Hitchcockian, a twist-laden depiction of a man becoming ever more paranoid and panic-stricken as he tries to outrun the consequences of his actions, end quote. And Hopkins, also in A Bridge Too Far, he plays Frost, who many consider the hero of the real-life events, and we'll see him again in Chaplin, but is still a relative unknown here. Magic is 13 years before Silence of the Lambs. Hopkins is wonderful as Corky, playing the thriller stuff coldly and the character stuff as warmly. And he was nominated for the Golden Globe here. 
William Goldman speaks so highly of A Bridge Too Far and Magic producer Joseph Levine, you deserve another brief history lesson. Levine was born in Boston in 1905 and was a hustler all his life. Quit school at 14, sold ladies' dresses, including having his own shop, drove an ambulance, ran restaurants, finally got into the theater, running one, exhibiting art house pictures. Then he's distributing, including importing some of the truly greats, like Bicycle Thieves and Eight and a Half. But his biggie was, wait for it, 1959's Hercules. Not the movie, if you've seen it, you know, but Levine's selling it. And you need to understand, every other producer in Hollywood thought he was crazy. They'd all seen the sword and sandal flop, knew how bad it was, had all passed. Not Levine. He bought it from Italy, fixed some color and sound, but a turd's a turd, so what did he have left? He marketed it with a capital M, spent triple what the movie cost on newspaper ads alone, bought billboard and comic book space, more radio ads than hours in the day, and he went directly to movies' late 50s enemy, television. He showed the best stuff from the movie in those TV ads, and who thought there wasn't more where that came from? He threw a party at the Waldorf Astoria for a thousand people, and he ordered 600 prints across the country. Everyone thought he was nuts. Well, they were only wrong by how much the movie grossed. 20 million. About 210 million today. Then Levine got serious. His real hits? How about, among others... Zulu, Nevada Smith, The Producers, The Graduate, and The Lion in Winter, which, yes, is from our Goldman's brother James, and won James an Oscar. Point being, by 1977 and A Bridge Too Far, Levine wasn't just the producer, he was his own studio. One thing that made Mr. Levine unique was he was the bank. He made his movies with his own money took no studio deals until late in the game when he had something to show. He was gambling that he would find movie studios who would want to buy, and he'd gotten rich that way. A bridge too far would cost him $22 million. $22 million then, about $110 million today, of his own money. Another brief history lesson? It's September 1944, and the Allies have a plan to end World War II by Christmas drop 35,000 troops behind enemy lines in Holland, take and hold a series of bridges, the last at Arnhem, and the biggest, think the George Washington or Golden Gate, while a tank corps roars in and uses the bridges to tear into Germany. That was the theory, only it failed, miserably. The Brits are different from us. We venerate victories, they adore disasters. So the greatest battle for them in World War II was Dunkirk, followed closely by Arnhem, where so many died so unfairly. Cornelius Ryan, an Irish journalist who'd already well-documented a World War II success, The Longest Day, about D-Day at Normandy, tackled Arnhem in his posthumously best-selling book. Legend has it the name comes from a comment by Lieutenant General Frederick Browning, who, before the operation, reportedly said to Field Marshal Montgomery, I think we may be going a bridge too far. I was thrilled at the chance of working with Attenborough, by far the finest, most decent human being I've met in the picture business. And I wanted very much to write Bridge. We met in London, where I was on my way back from location in France for Marathon Man, and he wanted me to do it. The Ryan book is well over 650 pages of not the largest print and filled with fabulous material. Arnhem will probably go down as the last major battle in which any of the old romantic notions of war still hold true. The movie was always intended to run close to three hours. It was impossible to tell the story in less time. But which story? If Goldman's beginning to work here sounds like all the president's men, you're not wrong. He indeed felt the same pressures, finding a through-line through a lot of great material while also remaining true to the real-life events as the story and characters deserved, not to mention the pressure of Levine's own money at stake. 
who, because they had to pull a lot of production triggers early, was two million in before a word was on paper. What finally untracked me was this. I lucked into the structure. There was a scene where a British general explained to his commanders what was about to happen, and he said, And we, my friends, are the cavalry on the way to the rescue. That was the light bulb. Because I realized, for all its size and complexity, Bridge was a cavalry to the rescue story. Just one in which the cavalry fails to arrive. Who tells the story on screen? How about, deep breath now, Sean Connery, Michael Caine, Anthony Hopkins, Denholm Elliott, Ryan O'Neill, Elliot Gould, Arthur Hill, Robert Redford, James Kahn, Gene Hackman, Maximilian Schell, Liv Ullman, Laurence Olivier, and, and, and. Further behind the scenes, production designer Terrence Marsh, art director Stuart Craig, cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth, editor Anthony Gibbs, who I had the pleasure of working with on the James Franco, James Dean for HBO in 2001, Mr. Gibbs' last gig. Look up all these names for their truly incredible resumes. If you've seen the movie, and if you haven't, please do, I hope you agree with my initial review of Simply Glorious, because I think it is. Is it long? Maybe, but I think the better word, if I'm to critique it, is it feels heavy, just a little too much throughout. And perhaps Jeffrey Jones said it best in Amadeus, too many notes. Still, the look of the thing, particularly the parachuting sequence, is so impressive in story and footage, that I think it holds throughout. Critics were lukewarm, most of them thinking it felt a little quote-unquote heavy, too. But remember we talked about Goldman and team working diligently to not Hollywood up all the president's men? And it rightly proved successful. Well, here, Goldman and team did the same. And it backfired. Nothing dealing with the spectacularity of Bridge is invented. All those incredible heroics were true. It's at least as authentic as all the president's men, and everyone took that film as sooth. But here they just didn't believe us. We were too real to be real. Critics aside, how did Levine come out? Remember, he was on the line for $22 of his own money. Did he have another Hercules on his hands? Or would this be another British glorified failure? It's an insane gamble in today's world. Nuttier back then. He sold it everywhere. Europe, Asia, country by country, territory by territory. And by the day it opened, he had collected 26. It opened 4 million in profit. And then in theaters, it made another 20. Never mind the critics. The theater going public loved it. It was a big hit. And it leads us right into Goldman's next project. Rounding out our chat this week, the July 1977 nonfiction story of A Bridge Too Far. It's the kind of book we don't see often today, a paperback released as coinciding promo. It's usually a novelization, but Levine wanted something different, something closer to a making of. And the result here is, if mostly annotated photographs, What's interesting about it is the section, titled Reflections on Filmmaking in General and A Bridge Too Far Very Particularly, where Goldman gives commentary like we'd seen in the season, this time about Bridge and other movies. It's his first direct Hollywood commentary, and as we'll come to know with all his Hollywood commentary, just as we'd seen with his Broadway, wonderfully insightful, honest, humorous. Mr. Levine was very kind to me, and I had a great experience on A Bridge Too Far, and he wanted something to publicize the movie, so I wrote it for him. The reason I say it's interesting is because I don't think Goldman knew it then, but I believe it's his precursor to Adventures in the Screen Trade. In fact, if you have trouble finding the bridge paperback, a good bunch of Goldman's commentary section made its way into the bridge section of Adventures in the Screen Trade. Mr. Levine thought of me as a kind of good luck talisman. His career was not exactly rocketing the years before Bridge, 
and when the movie brought him back close to the fire, he attributed a lot to me and wanted to continue their relationship. He bought my novel, Magic, made that movie, and then he proposed a three-picture deal. The work experiences with him had been so decent, unlike a lot of the standard Hollywood shit we all put up with, plus the fact Mr. Levine did not need studio backing, that he cared not at all for studio money or thinking. I jumped at it. And it turned out to be a huge contributor to my downfall. Thank you for listening to From Out of the Past, From Holland Imaginarium. I hope you enjoyed. Please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. And please leave questions and comments that I hope continue the conversation about this author, who certainly had an impact on me as a fan and writer. I imagine he's had an impact on all writers, indeed on storytelling across the world. Coming up next week, we go from 1979 to 1986, where we spend most of the time in what Goldman himself calls his leper period. What happened? We'll get there. Because the screenplays that didn't get made are really interesting, in and of themselves, but also in a what-if-they-had kind of way. Would some that were made not have been? Plus, those screenplays not going beget six novels, the last of which, in 1986, unbeknownst at the time, of course, would be Goldman's last. And yes, certainly unbeknownst at the time, as I think it is with all genuinely great works, he'll produce what many still call the greatest writing on writing we have to this day. I hope you'll join us for Chapter 5, The Leper. Thanks to Richard Anderson for his 1979 critical study, William Goldman, to John Brady for his 1981 interview in The Craft of the Screenwriter, and to Sean Egan for his 2014 biography, William Goldman, The Reluctant Storyteller. William Goldman's own excerpts heard throughout this season are portrayed by Jason Rohr. Our theme music is Shangri-La from Jackie Gleason. My name is Michael Holland. Follow the podcast on Instagram at From Out of the Past Podcast and message us there or at From Out of the Past Podcast at yahoo.com. And or you can find more me on Instagram at Holland underscore Imaginarium or via my blog, hollandimaginarium.blogspot.com. Thank you again for listening.